Hey everyone, welcome to Active and Connected Families. Today we have Jesse Dice, licensed clinical social worker, on to talk about OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder in kids. For most folks, when we think about OCD, we think about hand washing or lining things up perfectly or really perfectionistic kids. But the truth is, is that OCD can present in a lot of different ways. And very, very frequently, it is confused for generalized anxiety or overall anxiety. So today we're going to talk about the signs and symptoms of what OCD is, but more importantly, we're going to talk about what it feels like for the kids who are suffering with it. We're also going to talk about what it feels like for the parents, because you all are the ones listening to this podcast, and I think how you're feeling is going to really be useful in figuring out what's going on with your kids. We talk about the confusion and helplessness that parents can feel. We also talk about the power of correctly identifying the disorder. And we talk about the importance of family therapy as part of the treatment. Because again, at Virginia Family Therapy, we believe that the most powerful treatment can come when we're treating the whole system or the whole family. Jesse is a clinician and works out of our Charlottesville offices, and he is honest about his own personal experience with OCD. And Jesse is warm and he's funny, but more importantly, he is what us therapists like to call a psychodynamic therapist, which just means that he is generally deeper than the rest of us. I hope you love listening to this podcast. And if you do, please like and subscribe to it. And thanks so much for listening. Active and Connected Families is a smart, relatable conversation with me, Dr. Amanda Sovic-Johnston, child psychologist, mother of three, and entrepreneur. I've spent my career providing family therapy and supporting high-achieving mothers, and maybe even more hours with my girlfriends trying to figure out how we can all feel more confident in our work and our relationships. And you all, there's one thing I've noticed. We're all struggling in some of the same places, and we're all looking for some down-to-earth advice that we can actually use. So on Active and Connected Families, I'll share some of the insights I've learned, strategies for those daily fights about laundry, some expert perspective on the bigger issues like the mental health crisis, and me chatting with my therapist friends about how we can all feel a little more active and connected in our lives. Throughout, I hope to make you laugh at least once, but I know I'll leave you with something that'll help you become a better parent and maybe even person. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, Jesse, how are you? Good, how are you? I am really glad you are here because I think that the topic of OCD has been getting a lot more attention lately, and I really feel like I'm working with tons of parents who have kids that they know are anxious, mm-hmm. but really want to explore, does this look or feel more like OCD? And I'm so glad you're here to talk to us about it. It's it's confusing, right? Because anxiety looks like anxiety. <laughs> uh, deep thought there, and I'm like, and we all seem to have a lot of it right now. So it is it is really hard though to figure out: is it more anxiety or is it more obsessive compulsive? And the hard part with kids, depending on their age, is that it's hard for them to articulate what they're experiencing too, outside right. of stress, right? And, because you know, yeah. Because they don't know if like what they're thinking is normal or isn't normal. It's just what they're thinking all the time. Yep. So why don't you talk a little bit about the signs and symptoms of OCD and what that actually looks like when you're observing a child? Yeah. 
So breaking down obsessions and compulsions. So OCD is obsessive compulsive disorder. So obsessions are intrusive thoughts, sensations, emotions, experiences. And all that means is that these are things that are unwanted. We are not intentionally thinking or trying to feel a certain way, but it hits us. And so everybody has intrusive thoughts and experiences. That's part of the human condition. Compulsions are also something we can all get into, but this is where the flavor of this looks a little bit different is compulsions or acts or things that we do to relieve anxiety from these intrusive experiences. So a good example is uh, if I have an intrusive thought that I am looking at my door and I swear that I locked it, but I'm not sure. And mm-hmm. then that uncertainty really kind of takes over. And for people with OCD, logic doesn't play a big part of this. Like typically they are very logical, insightful, and know that the reality is that door is locked, but the anxiety and sensation is still intrusive enough where I may then go check that lock. And that's not going to be satisfying enough with that one act, that one compulsion. So I might do it again. And then you might see this repetitive compulsiveness to it until typically kids will say something feels just right or something feels um, a little bit like better or in place. Mm-hmm. I have someone, I actually have a kid who says it feels a little more comfy after they've yep. checked, right? They feel more, they feel safer, I think, in a yep. because they've reduced their anxiety. And yep. for a brief moment, they 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 feel calmer. It's an attempt to find relief. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what keeps it going is typically you do find something that temporarily relieves whatever that intrusive experience is, uh, but it's not sustainable. So it keeps coming up and it becomes kind of a battle. So that's what obsessions and compulsions mean. How they look, how they're experienced and how they feel can really range. And um, I, I guess I'll just kind of give a scatter shot of some, some things that are common and some things that are maybe uncommon, but are good to know about. Yeah, do it. So the stereotype of OCD being perfectionist, clean, orderly, uh, we can dispel kind of right out the gate is people can be very messy, disorganized, um, and still have OCD. OCD uh, can come out with a lot of different obsessions and compulsions. And so one is actually what I just kind of named out checking OCD. And you can check a lot of things, doors, lights, um, to see if you turned off your oven before you left the house, which we've all had kind of like maybe blips of, but these become really things that impact somebody's quality of life for Mm -hmm. kids. They might be checking their backpacks packed for school repetitively, taking a lot of time, stress decibels really high. Uh, Homework could take on its own kind of beast with checking to make sure they did something Mm -hmm. right. That there can be orderliness, cleanliness involved too, but there's a lot of suffering. So like when we're talking about that, a child could be washing their hands, taking showers ad nauseum throughout the day, mm-hmm. really impacting their social quality of life and physical quality of life. Um, they might tell you worries. They might share some parts of the worry that's kind of hard to put all the pieces together, but it could be that I just need to feel clean. It could be that I'm worried about germs. It could be that uh, 
again, something just doesn't feel right. And this is whatever this behavior is that you're kind of seeing that looks maybe unusual or takes a lot of time and has a lot of stress is an attempt to relieve it. Mm -hmm. So is that just checking or are there other types of obsessions as well? Yeah, there's a lot of, and and we categorize them to some extent, but there's also things that don't really fit categories that well. So there is uh, cleanliness, there is body related um, uh, or somatic related. So like you could get really um, hooked into the sensation of I'm going to vomit, or I feel like I'm having a cardiac event sort of thing for a kid. Mm-hmm. It might be like chest, chest tightness. Those things are really scary because we don't want to just dismiss them out of anxiety, but they can be these things that are are really preoccupying us. So like, I would argue a lot of eating disorders and a lot of um, body dysmorphic kind of things are OCD just in these very specific. Oh, that makes sense. I've never thought about that. Is that, is that something people are doing research on and thinking about a lot? Yeah. I mean, I think it's been theorized for quite a while. I think that the reason why like, it's not all just lumped into OCD is because of how common eating disorders are, for example, and how specific they are to food and to body Mm -hmm. um, that they kind of have their own category. But when you look at it, it meets full criteria for OCD most of the time too. Um, It just happens to be very specific and a lot of OCD can be very generalized. So for example, you could have somebody who has some checking compulsions or obsessions, compulsions, and they also have maybe the cleanliness and they have to wash their hands repeatedly and they're bleeding and because they're drying out so much. And it's like, yeah, it's a lot. And so they can also have what are kind of now called pure O OCD, which is more mental compulsions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those are hard to observe. um, But you see your child in high, high distress. And it looks different than I think what clinicians would call like generalized anxiety or social anxiety, where um, I'll give kind of a composite of maybe what you would observe is it can look like a child's almost dissociating. Sometimes it can look like they're really distracted, lost in their head when we're seeing mental compulsions. And what, what that is, is here's a good example. There's um, scrupulosity is OCD having to do with morality or religion. Mm-hmm. So the constant fear that you're doing something immoral that you are. Uh, and, and it's like a really existential kind of anxiety. Typically that is very internal. We don't observe somebody doing compulsions around that that often, unless they're doing something related to their particular religion, like working a rosary or or whatever. Like then you might be able to observe some parts of it. Typically, what it looks like is somebody could be mentally covering a scary word or a scary sensation in their head and having to do that repeatedly. So maybe they close their eyes and do that. Maybe they flood their brains. Uh, some people have to like repeatedly say something in their head to mm-hmm. get this unwanted intrusive thought out. And so again, not something that's easy to observe, but the compulsion's the same is this person needs to do this internal act or external act repetitively, compulsively to relieve themselves of stress. So let's talk 
on a pretty basic level for parents who are like, huh, maybe this is my kid. Let's talk about what it would actually look like in a house. And I'll give you some examples that I find really common. And my husband, who's a child psychiatrist, we talk about all the time is just what seems to us to be an increasing rate of kids who are really, really afraid of throwing up and will kind of do anything that they can to avoid throwing up or eating anything that they think might make them feel sick. And so Mm -hmm. they're doing compulsions around their food, but mostly it's to avoid throwing up their fear of throwing up. Is that, is that something? Yeah. I, I don't know if I can speak to how common it is, but it's definitely, it could definitely can be a part of OCD or phobia. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, in, in that instance, you will, depending on the age and development, have a child who's able to express, here's my intrusive experience. Like I'm really afraid of throwing up. They might even be able to like get really somatic and feel the sensations of like, Oh, I'm going to, mm-hmm. or they get so worried about this thing in the future, whether it's an event that they have to go to or something they have to eat that they work themselves up enough to like really be there in that moment of like, I'm going to throw up. And so Anxiety can be really high, can reach panic levels. You see avoidance happening at a really high level too. So this person may not go to these triggering social situations or eat the things that they are worried about, or their their lives kind of get really can get really small mm-hmm. in that way. Mm-hmm. And as parents, obviously, like that causes a lot of distress seeing somebody so suffering so much, so worried about this very specific events of throwing up. And I think as parents outside of saying like, Oh man, like maybe we need to get this assessed further and get help. I think that we want to protect our kids from having to feel that poorly and Mm -hmm. suffer that much. And so um, we might do certain things to try to help relieve that pressure, whether it's like encouragement, like and reassurance, like, Hey, you're not going to throw up. And like, here's some things maybe we can do to make it. So if this feels a little bit less scary, eating Mm -hmm. X, Y, and Z going to X, Y, and Z event. Um, Or we might try to rationalize with them and say like, listen, like, yeah, everybody has to throw up sometimes and it's, it sucks, but you'll get through it. Um, And while those can all be good in general, like showing that you care and love your kid, it can be really distressing for somebody Mm -hmm. with OCD to hear these things and still feel like that they don't have control over what's Mm -hmm. happening in Mm -hmm. that way. Mm -hmm. And that they can't stop that sensation. Mm -hmm. So, well, what else might kids be doing in the moment? I really liked what you were saying around they get themselves so worked up around an obsession. And I think one of the things that I really notice is making some circular arguments, right? Like they're, maybe they're saying, you know, I'm really worried about, I don't know, let's pick something. I'm really worried about even throwing up and you bring in some rationale and then they are continuing to spin about throwing up in a way that doesn't make any sense. And we're saying yep. throwing up, but it could be anything anything else like that. So you could use morality like I might not go to heaven if I look at that paper. I looked at my friend's paper during that math test. Mm-hmm. Or it could be 
Um, if I don't get 17 kisses at night before my mom puts me to bed, I am going to throw up or I'm going to go to hell or I won't sleep all night. It's kind of getting very, very worked up in a circular way around something that you would think someone that age could rationalize a little bit better. Does Mm -hmm. that seem to fit? Yeah, it's really a part of why there's so much anxiety with this is tip like insight can vary um, with that, this type of anxiety, but typically kids to some extent have an understanding or at least a feeling of there's a part of me that knows what I'm seeing or like the rationale I'm going about this doesn't make sense to Mm -hmm. me or Mm -hmm. to, to the situation. And then it's loss of control of, but I still can't help myself. I can't, that that's not enough for me to not do this, that rationale. And as caregivers or parents, if we are also trying to be there in that same capacity of reassurance of the reality of this, that it really is kind of like feeding into this OCD in a way where it's the, the, the rationale argument, the struggle with that is not the Mm -hmm. issue. It's Mm -hmm. being able to experience these really threatening things in a safer way. That's the, that's the issue. And so like in a, in a difficult way as parents, when we are trying to navigate the struggle between allowing our kids to make mistakes, feel pain and all that stuff so that they can live and experience life in these enriching ways and then also step in and protect them from doing some boneheaded mm-hmm. thing or some scary thing with, with this level of suffering. It's really hard to say, okay, I'm not going to try to take this distress thermometer down. I'm not going to be the person that reassures them in this moment. Um, and so inevitably, yeah, we do try to reassure them. So let me do an illustration of this and how I've seen this play out, which is say you have a child who is scared of falling asleep, just simple, you know, they, that is their obsessive thought. Like if I fall asleep, something bad will happen Mm -hmm. or something like that. And their obsession and their compulsion is to get 17 kisses from their mom in a row or something like Mm -hmm. that. So the the kid is very, very distressed. The mom comes in, gives 17 kisses, Mm -hmm. no big deal, thinks it's over. The kid doesn't fall asleep, gets very distressed again. Mom has to come in, give 17 kisses again. And over the course of a month, what has been kind of a one minute ritual has turned into a half an hour, hour, hour and a half ritual that's really making everything in the family, like what you're saying, suffering, it's getting in the way of normal developmental tasks. And, and from the parent's perspective, it's so easy to come in for the first time and just give 17 kisses and then be done. Right. Like, why not? Why wouldn't I take my kid out of this dress? It'll help everyone. But then all of a sudden you're down this rabbit hole of being in the bedroom with them for an hour and a half, two hours every night, not knowing how to get out of this system. And typically, not all the time, but typically OCD shifts over time. These compulsive behaviors, the intrusive experiences shift. So it might start off with reassuring them through the 17 kisses, and then it shifts or becomes even more kind of complicated where now it's also five hugs or like Mm -hmm. it, 
it's not unusual to have somebody say, yeah, I growing up, like I had like maybe one or two things I can remember that were really compulsive and over their lifespan, they, they either gain some, lose some, but like, it's not the symptoms and the way it's coming out that are really the the issue at the end of the day. So even though as a parent, it's like, yes, I can do this one thing to reassure this, my child and to like tamp down this really high anxiety. Um, at the end of the day, they're still left with that anxiety. It's going to come right back around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think that both parties can feel at times connected or frustrated, or like it can get, it, it can create some hardships, but at the end of the day, both parties can feel really helpless mm-hmm. because it's like, we're doing these things. I'm supporting this kid, but this mechanism, this beast is still there and it's maybe getting worse. And so it doesn't address the anxiety. If you are enjoying this episode and want more mental health support for you or your family, visit us at www.virginiafamilytherapy.com. We're a mental health practice with offices in Lynchburg, Charlottesville, and Northern Virginia, and we provide teletherapy across Virginia and North Carolina. We offer psychiatry, individual, child, and family therapy, and even have some after-school appointments available. Again, that's www.virginia, spelled out, familytherapy.com. Thanks so much for listening. So let's talk about ways parents can think about if they're in this pattern. And the reason I want to go this way with this conversation, Jesse, is I think there are probably some parents out there that are like, oh, wow, that could be me. Mm-hmm. And what I don't want to do is give a ton of information on this podcast so that parents can then think they're going to be able to implement it on their own. Right. Because it is so hard. Once you're in this cycle, we both know that it's going to likely take family therapy to get Mm -hmm. out of that cycle, because what you just identified is it's hard for the parent and it's hard for the kid. We can't, Mm -hmm. this is not a situation where we send the kid in alone to solve the problem. It's a cycle. It's a system. Mm -hmm. The family needs to help. Right. Mm -hmm. So let's yeah, talk I mean, about oh, every, go. everybody needs the psychoeducation with that. Everybody needs to be armed with the information of like how OCD operates and, and, and works both in the family system and how it feels in a person or to the individual too. So yeah, it is kind of a family affair. With kids and it's going to, because it's going to take support for the parents to not step in and just solve the problem, right? It's in our evolutionary nature. We're going to do our best by our kids. We're going to step in if we know we can solve it. So it's going to take support from someone else likely for us to hold back that desire, which will ultimately help our kids. Yep. So what are some other symptoms or other systems that parents might see themselves doing that could be an indicator that it's worth going to check this out? Because I think that's what parents could probably pay attention to, to decide if they need to go see a therapist in this way. Yes. How repetitive, persistent, and chronic, I think that this type of pattern reassurance looks is definitely a good way to gauge. I need to get this further assessed to see what's going on. So with a lot of generalized anxiety or kind of adjustment related anxiety, 
there's usually a lot of like ebbs and flows to it. And there's a thing that we can kind of locate to some extent with that anxiety. Mm -hmm. It's, oh, I'm returning back to school and have some of like this, you know, social anxiety going on here, or I'm getting really worried about my grades or uh, performing in soccer, like whatever it could be, like we can kind of locate it in these spots. And with something that could be concerning for OCD that would warrant further assessment is if, again, we see this uh, repetitive compulsive behavior that doesn't typically have to relate to the situation at hand. So again, like if your child's really anxious in a kind of general way, but they're checking the locks throughout the house for an hour at night, that act has nothing to do with maybe whatever, like an intrusive anxiety feeling is. Mm -hmm. And it may look really bizarre. So like, even though I wouldn't necessarily say like a kid's doing a bizarre behavior, if you're seeing something as a parent that just doesn't make sense in this repetitive anxiety kind of pattern that we're, we're building out. I think that that would warrant enough to be like, I'm very confused by like how cyclical this is, how um, urgent this anxiety is to have re reassurance how it feels like no matter how much support and reassurance I give to my child, that this anxiety doesn't go away. Um, that that urgency, that persistency, the chronicity of all of this are all big parts to help you untangle as a parent. Um, what kind of anxiety are we looking at? And if it's OCD, it's giving you both a lot of ammunition with how to actually address this as a family in a way that feels a lot less helpless than what OCD does feel like. Yeah. Cause I'm hearing this and I'm thinking as a parent, you're trying to help your kid. So they have an obsession. You, of course we want to help our kid, but we know that the obsession is going to come back with OCD. And so the parent really, I think if the parent doesn't feel like they're good enough and they're not yep. saying the right thing, Right. Like maybe it isn't 17 kisses, but maybe I need to say exactly the right thing. And I just haven't found that yet. Yep. So that kind of constant, you're right. It's a helpless. I'm not good enough. You know, I'm not helping my kid in the right way. I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. If you're feeling lost as a parent around your child's anxiety, that might be a really good indicator that something else is going on. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of like, confused like if you are really confused with what you're seeing like and that it doesn't like the the anxiety might make sense to some extent with some of the stressors in your family or family or child's life if the behavior you're seeing if the concern and the worry and the persistent reassurance need is, is confusing to you mm -hmm. i think that that can be a really good way to approach it because that's how it often starts and still is for a lot of kids experiencing this is it fundamentally doesn't make sense. It makes a lot of kids feel like they're going crazy, even if they don't voice that, like it's a really helpless and uh, disorganizing feeling. Mm -hmm. And so chances are, if everybody's kind of like got that sense that this is, this seems really big. This seems really uh, confusing with how this is coming out and how we're not able to make any headway one way or the other with this and both people maybe are getting frustrated. Like your child's frustrated that this reassurance isn't working and they're looking more fatigued with this and you're really frustrated or feeling really hopeless and helpless with this. Then yeah, 
I think that it, it that's definitely time to have somebody, a third party come in to see like, whoa, what, what's going on with these dynamics? Mm-hmm. And how do you know if your kid is quirky and needs specific routines in yep. place or if they're becoming compulsions? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. Um, I'm trying to think. So like, <laughs> like with, baseball i don't know why i'm bringing that up but it's one of like the more superstitious feeling sports to me Mm -hmm. (laughs) um like for most people i would consider it just like a superstitious quirk that they do whatever they do before they like get on the plate to bat or Mm -hmm. before they make a pitch whatever it is and it's a way to get like kind of a rhythm it's a way to like a little eccentricity that just kind of like is this thing that gives comfort but it doesn't come with like the uh intrusive distress experience Mm -hmm. those are like quirky so like the way that i translate uh that kind of behavior to like kids is your kid may be really particular about like what you put on their sandwich (laughs) uh certain textures throw them off (laughs) whatever it is but it seems very rigid and very like quirky or eccentric to them um the way that that looks a lot different than if this is like a intrusive experience that has this compulsion component is yes, your child might be thrown off or might like make some comments if like that sandwich was made the wrong way. And yeah, maybe it even throws off their day depending on what's going on to some extent that experience with that disappointment or distress around that is going to be much more situational with like, Hey mom, remember when you messed up my sandwich Hmm. compared to somebody who maybe has this intrusive experience, whether they voice it or not of like, if you make it that way, my day is going to be bad or I might die or something really scary feeling to the child is it will be immobilizing. Most likely Mm -hmm. it will be something that is probably that could be too scary to fully like spell out. It could be something that is really paralyzing and you see panic coming out. You see somebody really needing higher and higher exponential levels of reassurance for this one threat that just happened. So, yeah, I guess like it, it all boils down to how I would consider quality of life like how much does this quirky thing this kid does if it doesn't happen how much does that really impact their quality of life are they now unable to go to the soccer game are they now unable to go to school are they now having trouble making friends Mm -hmm. um and and sometimes i'll ask a kid that you know like what happens if there's mayonnaise on your sandwich Right. If you just ask, you might think they just don't like the texture. But if they say, if I eat that, I'm going to throw up. And if I throw up, I'm going to die. That's a pretty good, that's a pretty good indicator right there. But it becomes asking that question. Yeah. So what happens? And, and understanding their, their response to it. And I, I think this can be helpful for parents, but it's not necessarily something for parents to assess on their own. But like, there's things with OCD that again, going with the confusion part and the things that don't make sense that can feel scary. And it is something that kids or any adults too really worry about talking to their loved ones about. 
And so here's something that I think can be really helpful as parents to have the door open at least um, so that maybe it does make your child articulating whatever's going on a little bit easier, a little, or feel a little bit safer is because we can understand that intrusive experiences are things that we are not wanting. And because humans can have a lot of different ones and some of them can be bizarre, like the worry of I'm going to hurt somebody, even though that's not this person's nature and they never would, it can be this intrusive thought that can come in, or maybe they see something in their head that's violent, like a violent image and they can't get it out and it worries them or makes them feel like, what if that is me? Those things can be super alarming to parents. And I think it would be for all of us when we understand these things are likely can be intrusive experiences is I open the door and what want parents to be able to speak to and give that open door, um, which is a more kind of sustainable reassurance to their kid of like, in asking the questions of like, Hey, are you like having these thoughts? Are you having like images? Are you, are you having these experiences that feel really out there? Like whatever it could be, it doesn't have to be abnormal in that way. We don't have to like pathologize that Mm -hmm. as a scary event. Mm -hmm. And so like, I know the first thing I do when I'm assessing somebody that I'm concerned about with OCD is I will just kind of give a scattershot, like examples of some really bizarre stuff out there or what people would consider bizarre to give somebody a full range of like, yes, we have a name for this and this is all within the range of this experience. But It could be anything from the fear of vomiting to, yeah, I'm going to hurt my friends or I'm going to uh, do something like say something really offensive or I can't get this one image out of my head. And yeah. And so like it, it doesn't, you don't have to hunt and peck very much with anxiety with that. I think it can go a long way for parents to just open the door to be like, it looks like there's a lot going on here. And there could be a lot of things that you're not asking for that is coming up. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're experiencing? Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that makes so much sense. And I think that from a parent's perspective, when you hear stuff, it can be scary, right? Absolutely. Like I, you know, my kid is having a vision of a bloody knife. I mean, that is mm-hmm. certainly that something that happens and remembering by the way, you in that situation, get an assessment, go to a therapist, mm-hmm. but but remember that the answer could just be those are just neurons firing. Your mm-hmm. kid does not want to hurt themselves. Your kid does not want to hurt someone else. They're just they're neurons that are firing. And we can talk about it in that way. And so I think yes. understanding yeah. that some of the images are scary and the thoughts can be scary and they're scary for the kid, but they can also just be neurons firing and we don't have to attach emotionality to the yes. meaning of them. Or personality or character to right. them. Right. Yeah. Like I I'm sure I could get into this another in podcast a little bit more, but to give an example of that, like a I was diagnosed with OCD at 16 or 17 and most of it was my parents were able to see like, okay, I had a lot of checking behaviors going on that were really taking over my life. And that was good indication. Like, okay, we're going to do something. But the other stuff that I didn't realize until later on is I was having experiences that I wouldn't have told a soul about Mm -hmm. where like I was learning how to drive and I had this intrusive experience of, I'm going to run over somebody or I did just run over somebody 
And that would cause me to redrive that road again to make sure I didn't, or I would avoid roads completely, or maybe avoid driving that day. And so my parents could see like this high level of anxiety, but because the intrusive experience was so uh, scary, well, not as scary, it was so weird Mm -hmm. to even like articulate that it wasn't going to, that wasn't going to be something I was going to say. And of course Mm -hmm. we can't, we're not going to tell our parents like everything in general, (laughs) and that's not the goal. But I think that if you're a parent with seeing your child's life really shrinking, seeing this anxiety in this kind of pattern way, and still having a lot of blanks of like understanding what's going on. And then it maybe trickles out that, oh, they just mentioned to their friend over there that like they're worried that they just said something really offensive and that's why they're not going to associate with that group anymore or like whatever it is. But yes, it's hard not to jump to conclusions or like these big things as, as parents, but it could all just be a part of, like you said, these neurons misfiring. Mm-hmm. And that this and is I the think- I think, Jesse, one of the things that I want parents listening to this to know is that sometimes figuring this out for your kid can be the most powerful thing you are ever going to do. Because I think you are right, is that it is really Mm -hmm. confusing for the kid. It is really confusing for the parent. And to be able to put a name on it and a label Mm -hmm. on it whether you say it's OCD, depending on the age or not, but to really come up with systems and strategies, there's so much power in that for the family. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I I guess another thing I I would plug too for families is keeping your pediatricians close by too. There's enough we know about OCD to recognize that there is... um, there can be genetic components like you can see in families uh, and it's hard to tell if that's just biology or if it's also kind of how anxiety gets passed down. But um, at least with pediatric OCD or childhood OCD, there can be high correlations to repeat infections. Um, oh, right. Yep. As, as little kids. Uh, and there can be some other things that can contribute to uh, those symptoms, uh, even hormone shifts. And so Uh, A lot of pediatricians actually have at least enough training to get by to also field some of those concerns or questions, especially if you are getting them in tandem assessed by a therapist for the type of anxiety you're seeing. Mm -hmm. It's not a bad idea to give your pediatricians a a heads up. And I also want to say this is OCD symptoms and OCD treatment can look a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. So you know, there are, there's a lot around ERP. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do that? Do you want to talk about that Ex- really Exposure quickly? response. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so like the, pe- people talk about gold standards with uh, treating OCD. So I'll, I'll kind of just give, I think all of these can be very helpful. Um, but it's ERP is exposure response prevention therapy. And basically all, all that means is that it's somebody who's going to provide therapeutic structure to your child to experience this threat in their system. Um, these intrusive experiences in a way that is able to be accepted and tolerated without compulsions. And so it's a scaffolding thing where this takes, it's like working out in a gym. Your brain has been doing this compulsive thing for a while 
And so we're needing to get some practice. And what does it feel like to feel this threat, to use some maybe grounding techniques, to use some cognitive techniques to help us tolerate this a little bit more? And then the theory and the practice with it is through repeated exposures to threats where this child's making this choice to not engage in this compulsion and to feel this and to be with this in a different way that over time, that threat system shifts. So OCD becomes less scary. The big heads up I give is because that is such a gold standard for a lot of people seeking treatment is when your child's getting involved in therapy and your therapist will likely say this to hopefully your, your child and to you as parents is anxiety can increase temporarily for the first week to even a month doing this because it is hard work, but this is, it can be really dramatic in how quality of life gets retained and that there's um, medication still first line considered first line therapy for OCD too. A lot of uh, antidepressants work really well for helping out with tolerating some of those sensations a little bit better. So kind of your typical Zoloft, um, Prozac, those kind of class of medications. And I even, I have some really simple case, like simple clients and families that really little interventions Mm -hmm. have helped. So you were just talking a little bit about ERP and I'm not the gold standard at all, but essentially if I have a client who has a bedtime checking behavior, one of the things we did was just extend that check by 10 seconds every night. Right. So, and that was actually not very hard. So instead Mm -hmm. of checking, you know, 10 times, they checked nine times the next night because the time was reduced. And so it was a very gentle simple Mm -hmm. process. And Mm -hmm. it's not always like that. It certainly isn't always like that, but it can be like that. And so I want parents listening to know that if your child is struggling with this, it could be an easy fix. It could be a complicated fix, but knowing what it is, is going to give everyone the most power in the situation. That gives relief immediately. Oh, I bet it does. Almost 100% of the time. If we can put a name to this, if we can understand the mechanisms of this, even though there's a lot of, there can be a lot of work ahead. It gives a huge relief to what feels like a very um, scary and confusing experience. Um, And you're, you're right. Like it, these proceduralized ways of exposing somebody to this threat can look kind of uh, sterile or it could, it can look very specific, but the whole point of it is not the bedtime. It's helping that child experience this high distress. It just happens to be related to bedtime in a different way. And and so like it it can, we can use this specific event and apply it across the board in a lot of different ways. This child now understands, okay, these are some tools I can use to be with this experience in a way that doesn't feel as threatening. And so when this comes up in a different flavor, a different time, we can, we can do this again. Mm Mm-hmm. And ultimately the idea with that is them realizing if I extend it 10 seconds, that's not going to kill me. And then the more times they have the experience that that doesn't kill me, the, they get habituated to that instead of this is going to kill me. They realize, no, it's not going to kill me. And then that becomes their normal and they're able to hold on a little bit longer. There's a lot of, um, even though there can be a lot of distress um, with some of the treatments, uh, 
there's a lot of empowerment too, which is emphasized like the, these ways that your children are trying to control their anxiety hasn't been working and mm-hmm. it's been highly distressing to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we're kind of saying like, we can't continue doing this, that tool, that compulsive tool that you've been trying to use isn't working. So we need to figure out a different way of doing this. But with that comes a lot of empowerment, even if it is a skill that we need to build up is, Hey, this is a way you can get more sustainable control, which is really locating it. in how do you want to respond differently to this thing in front of you? You have control over yourself, not over this intrusive experience. Mm-hmm. And if we can have them experience that and hit, have that hit home in that way, then there's a lot of empowerment in that. So Jesse, this was really useful. It's got me thinking obviously about my own parenting and about my own clients and all of that stuff. Um, I think it was probably useful for folks listening. If people want to find out more about you, more about OCD, where can they find you? Yeah. Um, I have, uh, let's see, Tuesdays and Wednesdays. I'm out here in our Charlottesville clinic on Pantops. And I'm in Crozet Thursdays and Fridays. So if I have availability and you're wanting to reach out to, me, uh, to have your child assessed or you assessed, um, reach out to Virginia Family Therapy. Um, and we have a lot of good people that can also help out with OCD. Um, you can find a lot of good information actually on the international, the IOCDF.org. So it's the International OCD Foundation has a lot of awesome resources for parents and for kids to check out. So I heavily recommend IOCDF.org. Yeah. And can you share your Twitter account? Do you mind? Because it's a great Twitter account account, y'all for people who are into mental health. Yeah. It's a BRB health. So it's at BRB health. Um, And I do some tweets on OCD here and there. I do a lot on grief. I do a lot on just a lot of random experiences. <laughs> great. It's great. And it's very useful. And everyone, all your clients, all of our clinicians absolutely appreciate it. So Jesse, thank you so much for coming on. This was really useful. I'm going to be thinking, I'm going to be sharing this podcast because I think it's going to be useful for my clients. So thank you so much. And I hope you have a great day. You too. Glad we could do thank this. Thank you. Me too. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to like and share the Active and Connected Families podcast if you found this helpful. And if you or someone you love are interested in therapy, you can find out more about our practice at www.virginiafamilytherapy.com. Again, that's www.virginia, all spelled out, therapy.com. Thanks again.